Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. A week ago yesterday, Ardell and I were driving home from a really beautiful ordination service out of the Church of the Holy Communion when she said, I really hope they take that prayer that the family of the priest be adorned with all Christian virtues out of the next prayer book. I started to make some feeble defense of the prayer, something about the echoes of older prayer books I assumed were present in it. But at least it took me less time than it might have earlier in our marriage to come around to the clear rightness of what Ardell had seen so plainly. Describing virtues as clothing that a clergy family puts on, presumably to look morally pretty in the eyes of other people, is a really unhelpful metaphor. Wouldn't you agree? But whatever the peculiar set of projections and expectations clergy families may have to endure at times, virtue as adornment is a bad metaphor for all of us. Jesus' admonishment on Ash Wednesday that we not practice our piety before others in order to be seen by them seems like a pretty direct refutation of the idea of virtues as adornment. Moreover, how many times did Jesus do something or say something or speak to someone so as to intentionally violate some broadly agreed-upon moral norm? in order to show us how badly we can get those norms wrong sometimes. To offer just one of many examples in the Gospel of Luke, a woman thought to be of questionable character lets down her hair as she anoints Jesus' feet over in chapter 7. Everything is wrong about this scene. And everyone clothed with virtue in the room is murmuring and glaring at Jesus and at the woman. But Jesus does not send her away. He speaks to her as if she matters, tells her that her sins need not define her any longer. They've been forgiven. He even commends her to us as a person of life-saving faith, tells her to go in peace. Virtues are not adornment for Jesus. He seems thoroughly unconcerned about looking virtuous to other people, doesn't he? So what did drive him to live as he lived? Seems like a good question for us as we enter this season of Lent. It also seems like we see something essential to that question's answer in Jesus' baptism and in the temptation in the wilderness that follows it. We know the baptism story well. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us that Jesus was baptized by his cousin John in the River Jordan. In all three of these Gospels, the heavens open, the Spirit descends like a dove, and a voice says something like, You're my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. And in all three accounts, after being declared a beloved son of God, Jesus heads off into the wilderness for 40 days where he's tempted by the devil. So let's begin here. All Jesus did at the Jordan was step in line with a bunch of people John has just called a brood of vipers. So he's not performing any virtue when God declares declares him beloved. Which suggests to me, at least, that God's belovedness was not a response to anything Jesus did, 
nor was God's good pleasure anything Jesus had just earned. These were the deepest givens in Jesus' life, the surest things of all, the truths from which he would set out into a world whose values and whose notions of virtue will be very, very different from God's. After his baptism, we're told Jesus meets the devil in the wilderness. And there's a fundamental difference between this devil and the voice from the heavens at baptism. God simply declared Jesus a son at the Jordan. The devil says, prove it to me. People often assume that the devil with a capital D shows up regularly in the Bible. They assume he's kind of the Darth Vader character in a classic battle of good and evil. It's not really the case. There are plenty of people in the Bible struggling with various kinds of evil spirits, people possessed by terrible demonic forces. But the character of the Satan, Hasatan in the Hebrew, shows up first in the book of Job and only appears occasionally thereafter. You might have heard that in Hebrew, Hasatan means the accuser or the adversary, which only emphasizes further this difference between the values of God's reign and the values of the world. The Dominican theologian Herbert McCabe went so far to say is that we are literally making God into the Satan when we see God as our accuser and our adversary, rather than as the one who declares us beloved children. This is what the baptism and temptation narratives seem to say very plainly as well, isn't it? God is the one who declares creation good and who declares God's creatures beloved. The devil is who asks you to question your belovedness. The devil is who insists you must prove your goodness. Show it off to him like a garment. The question for Jesus might be the same question you and I have to answer every day. Who do you believe? God, or the accuser? In whose realm will you place your trust in the end? Look at the first temptation to turn stones into bread. It seems like a harmless miracle, especially if you've been without food for 40 days. The first temptation makes sense as a temptation only insofar as it's a challenge to Jesus to prove his identity. The danger being, I suppose, that If Jesus turned a rock into a stack of pitas, he might tie his deepest identity to that ability to perform miracles, rather than to God's declaration that he's beloved. And we have no record of that heavenly voice at the Jordan saying, in you I am well pleased because your miracles are so impressive, Jesus. There are distinctions in the nature of the other two temptations worth exploring in another sermon, but A fundamental question they ask as well is this. To whom do we give our ultimate trust and our ultimate loyalty? A God who declares belovedness or a suspicious, accusing, satanic world that insists our worth must be proved and displayed? Isn't that the realm the devil shows Jesus from a high place and promises him power and glory over? And Jesus says, no, thank you. I don't want to live in a world like that, much less rule over it. By the third test, the devil isn't even pretending there's hunger or power or anything else at stake. He just says flatly, if you're really God's son and you jump off the pinnacle of the temple, angels will catch you. So show me you are who you say you are and jump. 
Jesus says God's not in this devilish testing business, so neither is he. These are questions about what we believe about the nature of God. But they matter to much more than our theological systems, I think. The first carpenter I ever worked for was a guy named James Fish. I hired onto his house framing crew in Eatonville, Washington, more than 30 years ago. And one of the main tasks of an apprentice is cutting lumber to whatever lengths someone has yelled to you or penciled onto a scrap of two by four. Which meant that as I was learning the trade, there were a lot of days when I felt like I'd produced nothing but kindling. I'd cut a pile of studs an inch too short or mismeasure a plywood rip. And one day I'd made a bunch of mistakes with several floor joists, which meant it was a much more expensive one. I was feeling pretty low, and on the drive home, James could see it, and he said, man, I wish it wasn't true, but there just doesn't seem to be a way to learn this trade other than making a whole bunch of mistakes. And I hate to tell you, but you're going to make a whole bunch more. It was only then that I began to pay closer attention, not just to my tape measure, but to how James was teaching me how to be a carpenter. I knew he lost money when I messed up. And I knew that ultimately his job was to make sure the house got built and got built well, which, which meant paying some kind of attention to bumbling apprentices, especially if he didn't want to go broke. But I never felt like James was looking over my shoulder, waiting to see what I was going to miscut next. And in that moment, I also realized that if this had been the case, I would have made an even bigger mess of things anxiously trying to satisfy a suspicious accuser who was waiting to catch me up in a mistake. None of us will be at our best on a job site or in a world like that, will we? And there's a way in which that story, I think, is more than just a metaphor for what it means to trust a God of forgiveness and acceptance rather than an accusing devil. Because over and over again in the New Testament, we hear that we can't disentangle what we believe about God from how we live with other people. In fact, we often learn what we actually believe about God in the way we treat others. So when I'm in an accusatory mood, when I'm looking for how other people aren't measuring up and feeling, frankly, a little bit better about myself for a minute when I find something wrong with you, I'm literally being satanic. And when that's my frame of mind, I'll almost certainly find a fear lurking in some corner of my soul that God is also a suspicious, satanic accuser. The fear that I'm the one who doesn't measure up, that I'm the one who keeps trying to adorn himself with convincing virtues, but God buys none of it. The good news of Lent is that the entanglement of what we believe about God and how we act in the world means the truth can move both ways. Small changes in daily practices can become changes in what we believe about the ultimate nature of things, even what we believe about the nature of God. So here's my proposition. It sounds like a low bar, but I mean it when I say let's all agree to give up Satanism for Lent. Let's give up accusation. It doesn't bring abundant life and never has. 
Let's give up identities based on adorning ourselves in virtue to prove to a world of adversaries how good we are. And let's find ways to see the people around us, not as mistakes waiting to be made, but as beloved children of God. Children who will never be anything but beloved, whether they know it or believe it or not. Because the one holy and living God is a relentless lover, not a petty accuser. The bonus in coming to believe in and trust in such radical divine grace for friends and adversaries alike is that we finally might come to believe that belovedness extends even to the likes of us. If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates, or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.